Well, it's, a, it's amazing what the butt of an impala can teach you about holiness and community. Some of you are thinking, wait, penises a few weeks ago, now butts. What's going on here? If you're new with us now, you're really royally confused, I know. But ten years ago, Megan and I uh, led a mission trip to South Africa. And we had an opportunity uh, to have an additional day. Our hosts wanted to treat us to go on safari which is not something we had planned, but they said, we're doing it. We're taking you. Uh, so our team went, and we were out in the wild. I don't know if you've ever been on safari in Africa. I mean, no fences, no kiosks, no gift shops, no tourist attractions. You are in the middle of nowhere in a vehicle. Uh, just the wild. Gi- giraffes and elephants, springboks, monkeys, everywhere. And, but I was most fascinated by the impala. Now, I'm not talking about the car. I'm talking about the African animal that's kind of like half deer, half gazelle. We've got a picture of an impala here. Beautiful, beautiful animal. And we just saw these uh, all over the place uh, on safari. Now, animals, of course, are always on alert, especially in the wild, knowing that at any moment they can be attacked. And our safari guide, Andre, told us some amazing facts about impala. Uh, the biggest predator to the impala is the lion. And the impala have black parallel lines on their butt. Every impala has those black lines. And when a group of impala are being attacked or pursued by a predator, most often a lion, the impala, their brains are wired in such a way they only think one thing. The adrenaline is flowing, they're in a pack, they're running away, and this is the only thing their brain says. Black lines, look at the black lines, look at the black lines, look at the black lines. Because they know that if they just stare at the line in front of them, the butt in front of them, they're going to remain together. If they say, ah, forget it, I'm going off on my own, a lion and an impala, this is what happens. Next picture. But if you stay together, like the previous picture, the lion gets confused because it's saying, which one do I go after? There are too many. And oftentimes when they stay together, what happens is the impala leave alive. And it reminded me of that passage in 1 Peter 5 that says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, one of the evil one's greatest tools is isolation. And we've talked about this before. That God counters the evil one's attack by providing us a pack to run with. And this pack is called the church. And truthfully, as weird as it may sound, you and I are called to stare at the black lines on the butts of the people in front of us. Figuratively. Figuratively speaking. Figuratively. And others are called to stare at our butts too. Because the moment that we say, forget it, I'm going to be out on my own, that lion prowls around and the evil one knows, my chances are pretty good when I'm one-on-one. But if they stay together, I'm not very effective. You know, sin thrives in isolation and secrecy. And that's why holiness is a team sport. You ever thought about that? Holiness is a team sport. We've been talking about holiness, what it is and what it isn't. At the beginning, several weeks ago, I taught on holiness, what it is, what it's not, and how it absolutely has to be married to love. Now, holiness without love is legalistic judgmentalism. And love without holiness is just wishy-washy. 
And Doug taught a handful of weeks ago on God's work, holy affections and our own hearts. And then two weeks ago, Tim taught on why be holy. What are our motivations? And he used that metaphor that many of you have referred back to, dirty milk, right? Now, think about holiness throughout Scripture. Anybody remember the first time holiness is mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know? It's during creation when God looks at the seventh day and says, this is holy, right? This is set apart. This is different. In Exodus, God shows up in a burning bush to Moses and He says, Moses, take off your Tom's shoes because you're standing on holy ground. This is different. This is set apart. And then later in Exodus, God says that Israel should be a holy nation, a specific group set apart for God's purposes alone. And then there's several references to holiness throughout the Old Testament. Now, here's the problem, though. Many of us think that holiness is just an Old Testament concept. Oh, that's so Old Testament. Actually, holiness is all over the New Testament. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is present, and we're told that He'll guide God's people and guide His church in Paul's letters. This is what surprised me in my study of holiness that Paul and Peter, they open many of their letters. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter. All with this phrase, to the church of blank, God's holy people. Of all the words he could have used over and over again in the introductions, he uses holy. He didn't say to God's faithful people, to God's loving people, to God's innovative people, to God's cutting-edge people, to God's influential people. He said to God's holy people. That phrase is used over and over again. Ephesians 1, shortly after he says that, he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And finally, the book of Revelation. Do you know the last line in our Bibles? This is what it says. The very last book, in the last chapter, in the last verse, in the last phrase. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's holy people. So I must ask, if Peter or Paul were to visit Renew, would they use the word holy to describe us as a community? As we talked about holiness, we have to remember that it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a slap on the wrist, shame on you. It's not a pious moralism that's condescending to other people around us. That's not an accurate view of holy living. But we have to remember this, that holiness is more about beauty than it is about duty. It is more about beauty than it is about duty. It is a beautiful opportunity to lean into God's purposes for our lives. See, we have this false sense that if we live holy lives, then it will be a turnoff to the people around us. Why would I want to be a part of that? The truth is that when we actually do this appropriately, when we do this holy living thing well, in proper balance, it is attractive to the world around us. So how do we go about, as a community that stares at the lines of the butts of the people around us. How do we do that? Well, you've heard us talk about Romans 12 before, uh, this passage. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true 
and proper worship. Okay? And next slide. Um, this is, uh, this is in the New Living Translation. I love this. Christian brothers and sisters, I ask you from my heart uh, to give your bodies to God because of His loving kindness to us. Let your bodies be a living and holy gift given to God. He is pleased with this kind of gift. Now this morning, before we started, knowing that this was on my mind, that we'd be teaching on this, I asked someone, I said, so how was your week? What was the highlight of your week? And she said to me, starting medication so I can quit smoking. And I said, that's great. And then she said this, it's for God and also for me. And I was just so jolted by that statement. For this person, she wants this to be a living and holy gift given to God in that area of her life. I thought, that's, that's the root of what we're after here. Wanting to see our whole lives aligned around what God desires for our lives. I love that phrase. Let your bodies be a living and holy gift given to God. See, I don't know about you, but the problem with me being a living sacrifice, and we've talked about this before, is that there's a constant temptation for me to actually crawl off the altar at any time. If I'm offering a sacrifice in Old Testament times, there were cows and sheep and rams and uh, all sorts of animals. And any time, if it's dead, it's staying there, right? A dead thing ain't going to crawl off an altar. But if I'm a living sacrifice, that temptation is always there for me to say, you know what, it's just too inconvenient, it's just too unpopular, it's just too difficult. You know what, forget it. I'm out. I'm crawling off. I'm not going to do this. I don't know about you, but I can let myself off the hook pretty easily. And that's why we absolutely need community around us to help us to be living sacrifices in what we eat and how we spend our time and how we use our genitals and what websites we look at and how we use our money and how we use our tongues. All opportunities to use our bodies as living sacrifices. And by the way, why do we do this? Because of His loving kindness. It is not because of the intimidating iron fist of God. You must do this. It is because of His loving kindness to us that we respond this way. Let's make sure that sinks in because oftentimes I think God wants me to do this because that's what He demands. And Because of His loving kindness to us, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. When we're part of the community of God's people, we must realize that holiness is personal, but it is never private. Holiness is personal, but it is never private. And if holiness is a team sport, then how do we do that in our personal lives as a community? How do we do that? That's, that's really what I want us to focus on. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 18. We're going to explore this a little bit further. See, the, the world's approach to dealing with conflict or sin or pain is normally one of two things. Silence or violence. Well, I just don't want to rock the boat. 
I'm going to ignore it. It's too awkward. It's too weird. So I'm just going to turn my head the other way. Silence. Or violence, where I come back at someone with a snark remark. Or maybe physically I come at them, right? Jerry Springer is all built on this whole idea, right? Conflict and sin dealt with poorly. And there's a whole multi-million dollar business based around this. Silence or violence is the response. But Jesus gives us a process for actually how we're to deal with sin and conflict as God's people together. And it's neither silence nor violence. It's a better, more honorable way. Okay? I want to start in verse 15 of Matthew 18. It says this, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. And if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again. So that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. And I'll stop there. Now, some of you may say, that sounds incredibly harsh. My goodness. But this is what we find. And let's make sure we see the whole context here. Because Jesus' instruction about church discipline is situated in a story that happened right before and a story that happened right after. I want to make sure you notice that in your Bibles or on your smartphone. Notice what's going on before and after Jesus mentions this. The first one, the beforehand, is a kingdom story of a wandering sheep. A parable that Jesus tells. He says, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders away, he'll leave the ninety-nine sheep to go around after the one. And it says, and he's happier finding the one lost one than of already having the ninety-nine who are found. Jesus says, that the heart of the Father has no interest that anyone should wander off. And when they return, there is great rejoicing. So that's, that's beforehand. Then afterwards, there's the passage dealing with sin. After, after that passage dealing with sin we just read, there's a conversation that happened that, that's prompted by Peter's question. In Jewish understanding, rabbis said this. Rabbis gave a limit of three times to forgive someone for the same sin. First time, I forgive you. Second time, okay, I forgive you. Third time, this is the last shot. Fourth time, no way. I will never forgive you. You've done that four times now. But Peter, and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone? Up to seven. You know what Peter's saying? I know it's three. I'm going to double that and add one. Surely that's gracious enough. Seven times, right? Look at me, Jesus. I'm being really gracious here. And Jesus says, no. Seven times seven. Right? Or 77. And then sometimes it says seven times 70. The whole point is, no, Peter, even when you think that's even gracious, we're going to be even more gracious than that. Way more. So the story before is a wandering sheep that comes back and there's great celebration and afterwards Jesus says, no, no, no. You think you're being generous? It's way more generous and loving and gracious than that. And right in the middle, he has these verses about how we handle sin with one another. So when we look at this, we have to understand that the whole context of this passage on church discipline is rooted in grace and forgiveness. 
Even the process of church discipline needs to be gracious, Jesus says. First, you go to that person privately to restore them, not to humiliate humiliate them or to shame them publicly in front of others, but one-on-one. And it protects that person from the harm of gossip, right? We have all been hurt by people who have gossiped about us, spoken badly about us behind our back. That happened this week with me, and I'm still shaking a little bit with what has happened, knowing that people didn't come to me. I feel so dishonored and hurt by that process. And Jesus says, you go directly to them. And the other thing is you don't embarrass them and confront them in front of a thousand people. And number two, if they still don't heed your words, hoping that they do, hoping and longing and praying that they come back and say, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. I need to confess that. But if they still don't heed your words, Jesus says, bring one or two other people to make sure the whole thing is remaining truthful. Another way of honoring the person. And third, then bring it before the leaders of the church to deal with it. Hoping at that point that they see, wow, now there's a group of people that are really serious and really long for what's best for me and want me to run after God. Whew, you know what? I need to repent of this. My eyes are, are being opened to realize, holy cow, this is a big deal. But it says if they still don't repent, to treat them like a tax collector or a pagan. Now, tax collectors and pagans were excluded from religious life in the first century. So, Jesus says at that point, it's best to just not deal with them. To just say, okay, we release you. You're on your own. You're on your own. Three chances offered to the person to be restored back to the community. doesn't say one time you're out, but this process lovingly, relationally, of inviting people back in. Say, you're in the wrong, we love you, but this just can't be. I remember there was an example of someone in college, someone that lived on my, on my floor, and I, I saw this play out where somebody uh, clearly was in the wrong about something, and, and the, the, the person close to that situation went to them and said, you know, uh, you, you and I both know you, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not right. And they said, you know, who are you? Just get out of here. It's none of your business. And this person was left shaking. And they said, well, the process, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring two or three other people along with me. And they got a couple other guys on the floor that, that, that knew this guy and sat down and said, look, man, we love you. But this just can't be. And it was in that process, I don't know if it was the wording or just seeing a few more people there, he began to say, you know what, wow, this was a blind spot. You're exactly right. And it was like super tense, right? I mean, no one wants to enter into that. And if you do, you're probably a masochist, you know? I mean, nobody enjoys that. But coming out on the other side, that guy, years later, emailed those three guys and said, you know what, that was a marking conversation in my life. And when I've had to actually sit down and confront other people, you know what runs through my mind? is sitting on the couch in my dorm room with you all around me saying, we love you, but you got to stop. And he said, that was such a gift you gave me. That was so helpful for me to see that you cared and you loved me and you could have easily ignored it. But instead, you leaned in because you cared about me more than an awkward conversation. See, the process is always rooted when we are confronting those, this holiness as a team sport idea, 
It's always rooted in a hope that the person in the wrong will be restored and reconciled. Renew? Imagine if we lived out Matthew 18 with each other, hoping for restoration, longing for the best in people, protecting people from being hunted down by the lion. That would be beautiful. And some of you have already done that. And I want to say, good for you. That's great. That is beautiful when that happens. But even with the hope that the person will repent and be restored, Jesus says, there are times where the church still has to say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Remember, to overemphasize grace but turn our heads the other way and to ignore an issue of sin leaves us unfaithful to what we're called to be and to do to each other. And to overemphasize truth and be on a witch hunt for wrongdoing in other people's lives leaves us untrue to living as faithful representatives to Jesus and nobody wants to be around that. Nobody. Jesus says there's got to be a balance between grace and truth. Notice He doesn't say there's got to be grace and grace. He doesn't say there needs to be truth and truth. He says there's grace and truth. And I was talking with a church planner this week um, in Phoenix and in He's feeling God's calling him to another state to plant. And he said, I've even got the name of a church. I said, well, it's a little early, but what, what were you thinking? And he said, I would call it Trace Community Church. I'm like, oh, like Una Dos Trace? He's like, no, like Trace. I was like, oh, like tracing paper? He's like, well, sort of. He said, if we're a community that's full of both truth and grace, he's like, I, I just want to be a Trace community. I'm like, oh, so you just made up a word. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Every community should be a Trace community. Right? This balance of truth and grace smushed together. You know, we should be both shocked and not shocked by the sinfulness of other Christians. We should be both shocked and not shocked by the sinfulness of other Christians. And by the way, let me make it more personal. We should be both shocked and not shocked by the sinfulness of us, of me, of you. Now, this is something that, uh, that Dave Allen said uh, a little while back. He said, Sin is happening all around us in the church. And when sin comes out into the open, or it's exposed, our calling as Christian brothers and sisters is to address it for the sake of restoration. Because sin isolates, blocks, and destroys, but forgiveness heals and restores. And this is a messy process that all of us are called to, but this is what authentic Christian community looks like. That's very well put. And this is why the church that Jesus imagined is one that's to be a confessing, repenting, forgiving, praying, loving, worshiping, celebrating community together. Right? We all need to be restored at some point. We all need to be renewed. Do you realize that when we play holiness as a team sport, we're actually living up to the name of our church? When we do that well, we actually are saying we're the renewed community because we are being renewed, are in the process of being renewed. Other people help in my renewal process. I help in other people's in the power of Jesus. Because this is so important, I want to read this Matthew 18 passage in the message just to make sure we fully understand it and to let it wash over our brains just one more time. It says, If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell them. Work it out between the two of you. And if he listens, you've made a friend. And if he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of 
witnesses will keep things honest and try it again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Again, holiness is personal, but it's definitely not private. And we might be tempted to say, when someone is confronting us, when someone is confronting us, we might be tempted to say, "This is none of your business." You ever heard that before? Talk to someone. This is none of your business. But here's the, here's the reality, though. The startling reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a committed participant in a fellowship of Jesus followers, like we are here at Renew. Actually, that area of your life is your business. And we're a part of a Jesus community, whether we like it or not, we've actually forfeited that right. And that might sound harsh, but it's actually to protect you. Because I'm staring at the black lines on your butt as a spiritual impala, not to be a jerk, but to actually protect you. And I actually ask that you do the same with me. Would you stare at my lines on my butt to make sure that I'm not wandering off because you know what? The lion wants to get me too. I need your help. I need you. Doug needs you. Our elders need you. The evil one is like a lion prowling around looking for people to devour. And when we say it, renew... Right, you've heard us say before that we only have one rule. I was telling a guy in the sauna at the gym yesterday when he found out I'm a pastor. What kind of church you? Oh, we just, you know, we're a church uh, where the only rule is no perfect people are allowed. And he goes, "Dang, I could be a part of that church." Yep. It is a come-as-you-are environment, but it is not a behavioral free-for-all. We are here to stare at the lines of the butts of the people in front of us. Metaphorically speaking, of course. And this is for our safety because the evil one truthfully wants to destroy you. Now, there's a lot of guys in this room that have been a part of the men's discipleship group and uh, maybe you've seen it on uh, social media this week, but uh, we had a chance to do something as we end every men's discipleship group. Um, We give the new graduates of the men's discipleship group this instruction. Wear a white dress shirt you don't mind throwing away and come hungry to this, to this address. And they show up. Here's a picture. Okay, a little, little bit dark. And what we do is we eat wings together. And one of the things we say, though, is we tell the waitress, do not put napkins on the table. The reason being is this. Because the white shirt of the person next to you is your napkin. And we have a blast. It's great. In fact, uh, there's a lot of touching going on. I mean, in proactively, intentionally more than necessary, right? We just go up to people and say, Hey man, so glad you're here. Right? Our hands are nasty, but we're doing that to each other and people are doing it to us and some people are making smiley faces on shirts and we had a great time. This is how we always end. And we invite the alumni. They know what's going on and they come and welcome the new guys in. And this is, after we do all this and we're all, you know, full and we've, we've finished off the wings, then we say, you know what? We've just symbolically lived out what it means to be a part of a church. 
Because being a part of a healthy biblical community means that we actually wear the messes of the people around us. And you wear mine. I wear yours. That's what it means. And yes, it's messy, like Dave said. It is messy. But when we do this together, it's not only formative, significant, memorable, it can actually be fun. This is like the fifth or sixth time I've done this throughout the years. And each time, I find myself laughing and cackling every time. Because where else do you get a chance to do this? I try to describe this to Bennett, who's four. And I said, this is what we're doing. You know, don't, you know, this is a secret to the new guys. They don't know we're going to do this. And he goes, you're allowed to do that? (laughs) And I said, one night, one night you're allowed to do that. But only one. And then he said, can I come next time? But the truth is, all of us took our shirts off and threw them away in the bathroom trash can on our way out and walked out with our undershirts. You know, the great thing is that there's also confession that we actually get a chance to take our white shirts off and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And the beautiful thing is, we can walk out with our white undershirts knowing that we were stained in our dress shirt, knowing that Jesus once again will say, yeah, I forgive you, and in my grace, here's a new white dress shirt. And that's what we celebrate together as a community. And there are others, other examples of this. This is very metaphorical and fun, but there are others that are very formative in our church. There are several men that have the Covenant Eyes accountability software. They actually identify two people. They get the printout of all the websites that they look at in a given week. So weekly email that goes to their inbox where they can see. And it, it's this person saying, I'm going to ask you too, would you be willing to do that and receive these email updates? And these two friends say, yeah, I'd be glad to. And sometimes there's one that comes up and goes, hey, I've... I'm pretty concerned. What was this on Tuesday night? I love that there's that accountability going. And I've had several men in this church say, I was about to click on that site that I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, and I didn't do it. And you know why I didn't? Because I knew I had two guys who were staring at the the lines of my butt. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Cindy Culp and the team of women uh, who are developing a culture who are serious about moving in the direction of Jesus even more. Uh, Women connecting regularly to open up. And I know the women's retreat was even around this very topic of how do we do this together? There's all sorts of things that happen less formally and less officially. You know, recently I uh, heard of somebody within our church who said, hey man, you know what? Um, I said to another guy, I heard you tell that story of what happened last week, but I was with you when, last week when that happened. Like, that sort of happened, but you really embellished that story. You, like, added all sorts of details that 
it isn't actually what happened. I think you just wanted to make the story better. And I said, you know what, you're right. I did, and I need to go back and confess it to the person I told the story to. That's, see, here's the thing. That's not duty. That's beauty. That is beautiful. Because when we do that, we begin to be, to be a loving, confessing, grace-extending, worshiping, praying community together. And if we say that but don't do it, it becomes theoretical and it becomes really hypocritical. But when we begin to do it and lean into that, we wear the messes of the people around us and they wear our messes. It's beauty. It's beauty. See, the truth is, the black lines on your butt are my business. And the black lines on my butt are your business. And that's what it means to be a part of a loving community that seeks to honor God by living holy lives while always hoping that we will be restored back with love, grace, and forgiveness. May we be a community that leans into the awkwardness and is willing to reach out with fingers that are all messy with the wing sauce of life and say, hey, i got to share something with you. Someone else says, yep, and i got to share something with you too. And you got to help me. See, when we begin to forgive one another, when we begin to reconcile with one another, when we begin to be renewed together, the world can't help but notice. Stories of reconciliation and forgiveness move us, right? When Darcy told the story of her mom, I'm over here with tears in my eyes. Why? Because reconciliation moves us. That is a beautiful story. And when we begin to do that in little ways and in big ways as a community, the world goes, I can get on board with a church like that because I hate church, but that's different. That may be something I could actually get excited about. And it's at that moment we actually are faithfully living out the kind of community that Jesus invites us into. So let's be a trace community here at Renew. Let me pray. God, uh, holiness uh, can be a hard topic. And one of the things that we've noticed through this series is when we teach on it, the quietness in the room. Because God, maybe we're really wanting to learn what holiness is or maybe we know what it is and we just aren't living that way. And, or maybe we've been hurt by those who've been unholy or those who have been super holy. Regardless, it, it really hits home with us. So God, would you help us to realize that staring at the lines on the butt in front of us when we're being attacked, that it is better for us to stay in the pack than for us to run off on our own into, this, into the wild and say, this is none of your business. I will handle this myself. God, it's with grace and forgiveness and mercy that you actually give us this model and this process for how we handle conflict in the church. 
May we be wise, may we be loving, and may we be courageous to do the right thing because when, when we do things that are obedient to You, it releases something great in our souls. And we want to see more released in our souls in knowing that we're being obedient to what You're asking us to do. Would You help us do that, God? Because we do not want to be devoured by a lion like we saw that impala on the screen. Help us to be a pack that runs together. And not only that, when we see other impala around us that we don't, we, we don't know, may we invite them in to run with us as a pack. God, thanks for your goodness and your grace that you do forgive us, that you hand us a new white shirt and say, I forgive you, give me your old one and let me give you a new white dress shirt. Thank you for your grace. Thanks for your love in that way. It's that story that we celebrate. And it's with that that we pray. Amen.